Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Norman Westberg, who you may know as guitarist of Swans, but also Norman releases solo music on record labels and also in these really pretty handmade editions that he puts out on Etsy. And what I love most about Norman's music, which is all guitar funneled through effects and then out through amplifiers, is there's a real sense of acceptance. There's something very meditative about it. It's all improvised and sometimes it ends up in some quite strange and dissonant places. But Norman always has just the most beautiful way of navigating the unknown. Uh, he put out a record called The Chance To on Little Cracked Rabbit just at the end of last year, which is maybe my favourite thing that he's put out solo so far. Um, we had a lovely chat. I really enjoy talking to Norman. In fact, there's a full-length interview with him about his music up on Attention Magazine, if you search his name. He's really funny and very kind. I think he's got some really awesome stories as well about his own experiences, both listening and creating music, and we get into a few of those here. He's also got some curveballs in his picks, I think, or at least one of them really caught me off guard. Won't take too long to figure out which one that one is. If you want to keep up with what Norman's doing, you can go to normanwestberg.com. Actually, at the time of recording this, it's not been updated since 2015, so perhaps search him on Facebook instead. He did say that he was going to try and kick back into gear with the website. As always, I'll have those links up at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening, along with links to Norman's picks as well. But without any further delay, this is Norman Westberg on Crucial Listening. Norman, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi Jack, thanks for having me. Now, I want to start by asking you about a couple of recent releases that you've put out. One of which is on Little Cracked Rabbit called The Chance To. And I think it contains some of the most, I think some of the strangest and also some of the most immediate music I've heard from you. I'd be intrigued to know what your recording setup looked like for this one. Um, I did that I tried a different thing. I went out, I live in a loft in New York City, and uh, my studio now is back in, is in a separate room, but this I took out into the big room where my wife and I do our art projects and live in general. And I, I was trying to do recordings to do, to send to somebody so they could play on them. And without naming names, it didn't work. And, um, but I liked the tracks. And then I edited them down some. And when 
and uh, David from LCR approached me, uh, I thought these would be perfect for that. And it's just two amps through a variety of pedals. And there's a track on the record called Run Up Hills, which has the most bizarre kind of sliding, melting delays going back and forth. Right. Uh, what on earth is happening there? I mean, is that just a particular stream of effects? Yes, I think it is. I mean, what I do is I, I play and I get things going and manipulate by playing guitar. It's all guitars. And then when something cool starts happening, I jump on it and work with it. I think what's interesting as well about that piece is the fact that also it develops into something that almost subverts those beginnings. So I guess when you first discover that initial point of intrigue that causes you to start recording, am I right in saying that you're heading into the unknown after that point? It's pretty much, yes. A lot of times I'll start playing something, I'll like the general sound, I'll have an idea of what I want to do, and then from there, it's a journey to the end. And uh, I try to tell, uh, it's almost like a, uh, it's an improvised story, really. Hmm. And I build up my language as I go, and hopefully I retain the language by keep playing while, while steadily practicing and playing that I can come back to it, which isn't always that successful. It doesn't always really work that way. With all the pedals, it, it, a little change really changes things. Hmm. I saw that you also put out a new release called Something Else, which was a handmade CDR. That was um, Somewhere Else. Sorry, beg your pardon, Somewhere Else. Now that you're releasing music on other labels... Has that led the handmade releases to hold a different utility for you? Um, maybe with that one. I'm very busy right now working on a new original release for Room 40. And um, I'm a little behind on doing another handmade release, but I'm going to keep doing those. We have another one vaguely in the works. But that one was a compilation of live shows. And I had the idea for the sleeve, and I had all the live show music, which I enjoyed listening to, so I decided to whittle it down into a release, limited release. I remember, actually, the last time that we spoke, you mentioned that Lawrence English was talking to you about working with shorter durations or maybe chopping your tracks up into smaller pieces is yes. that something you've been exploring i see some of the tracks on that somewhere else release were considerably shorter than a lot of your material is usually the somewhere else the shorter tracks were just those were the parts that really interested me when i was listening through and uh, i felt they worked nicely and I wanted to add more to that release anyway. So I think there's a couple long tracks and then uh, three maybe shorter ones. Uh, and yes, we're trying to work on some shorter, taking maybe one of the longer, making a more song-like, I suppose. Less of a dialogue or controlling the dialogue a little more and shortening the length of them. Uh, the new record, I think that about five minutes seems to be a comfortable start to finish, really. Wow. Whereas my older tracks are 15 minutes, 20 minutes. 
And does that bring anything different to when you're playing it? I mean, does it bring any, I don't know, sense of urgency to the process of change that the pieces are going through? Um, it makes me maybe step up a little bit more. Um, you know, step up my progression. I did a, a restaurant show. I did three 45-minute sets, two nights in a row. And that really slowed down because <laughs> I just played one <laughs> long thing for 45 minutes, basically, and moved around, and then I would do a loop in between. And then... Um, it made the shorter pieces just move. I, I got tighter about my changes, that's all. Because mm. there are changes within. I uh, say my set is 30 minutes. I have basically four different bits that I do. Whereas if I was just doing it over the course of an hour, I would make it so slow. But now I make it tighter if I'm doing a shorter set. I don't know if that answers your question. That was a pretty rambling answer there. <laughs> no, I guess it's quite a, uh, a vague question as well. But I, I'm really interested in the impact that setting durational constraints has on the work. Because, I don't know, there's a sense with some of your music... That And I don't know if this is the case, I'm just talking about listening, but the sense of duration dissolves. It's something that I only really click back into once the track is over. I'm like, oh, that was 20 minutes long, but it didn't feel like it. Well, that's, that's good. That means you got immersed in it, and that's the way I, I like that. And to shorten the pieces, also the big change with this will be uh, the fact that it's not just me and two amps and one take so the next record will have parts added i'll be overdubbing and adding layers and trying to control those layers to give the same feeling of you're listening to something being made how's that working out how are you finding the experience of working differently to your usual setup I'm not sure yet. <laughs> the, the, the jury's out. Um, it, it's new to me. Well, it's not completely new to me, of course, being in the studio and building up tracks. But for me personally, I really take a lot of joy and I really enjoy um, just playing that one track and, and knowing that that's the take. You know, like it or not, that's what happened during this conversation. And you can't really take things back, but you can play off of things, which is the way my other method of recording, which I will keep doing that, of course. All of these tracks are, the new tracks are based on that idea. I, I just play, and I try to just move it along quicker and go through more like a, a, a chance to, the LCR record. I tried to do things shorter on that one, too, and get things moving and switching a little quicker than my other recordings. Yeah, the piece, I think it's called Coco? Coco, Feel, yeah. Yeah, it feels much more dexterous and melodic than a lot of the tracks I've heard, and I guess that almost enables it to do more within the duration. Right, and once more I was trying to play something that somebody else would play over, so I wanted something they could possibly latch onto 
and you know not just kind of waves of weirdness going by <laughs> um, and changing without any kind of idea so that's what i tried to do on that i don't know how close i came to it but well, I love it. It's a really interesting track, I think, embedded in amongst tracks that probably greater resemble those waves of weirdness you're talking about. And then Andrea F., I think the first one is... Um, um, wow, it's all related, actually, to what we'll be talking about today. Uh, Andrea F. is kind of, uh, dedicated to Andrea Feldman, the Warhol superstar whose laugh from the movie is my telephone um, message notification ringer thing. Well, this seems like a great segue, actually. I mean, we can talk about the albums that you've picked out today, three important records. And one question I like to ask, and before we hit record, we sort of touched on it, but I'm intrigued as to how... Um, I guess, thinks about the term important. I mean, what was the way in which you thought about importance with regards to this uh, in order to come up with the selection of records that you picked? Just for, just things that are touched on in a lot of the lyrics. Um, Berlin I got when it came out, so I was a kid and that's been with me for that many years. And just records that I always come back to. I find myself going, oh, what is that? And then I realize it's one of these records, and I go back and I listen to it. I'll play you that. <laughs> I have the whole thing, too, uh, recorded somewhere. And it goes on for, I think, about 35 seconds. She's laughing at Joe D'Alessandro's character. Wow. And this huge fake laugh, and it's it's one of my favorite things in a movie, really. <laughs> and that's your text alert, did you say? That's my text alert, and it would drive <laughs> Michael Jira crazy. <laughs> so I sent him the whole thing, too. And my phone alert is my daughter laughing hysterically, too. So, <laughs> Is there something about hysterical laughter that... I guess so. I mean, I didn't, it's not necessarily, well, I guess it's purposeful, but it doesn't, I just enjoy it. <laughs> Even after receiving uh, numerous texts and listening to it every day, huh? Uh, at one time we were on a tour and I think my Richard, Sir Richard Bishop was kind of laying on my coat and he went, somebody's coat is laughing <laughs> because I had on an old droid you could have the i had the laugh went on for the entire time you could do unlimited lengths in your uh notifications unlike an iphone so yeah i said oh that must be me <laughs> and i only else. just now realized that yes and a chance to is a line from uh one of the nico chelsea girls songs wow so it's all tying together here. Yes. Well, um, I'll let you pick whichever record you want to talk about first. Let's talk about Nico, Chelsea Girl. Why is that one important to you? I just find it to be a beautiful record. I, I enjoy it. I love the lyrics. Uh, I know uh, there's a Bob Dylan song. I'm not a big Bob Dylan fan, but um, I'll keep it with mine, right? That's the one mm. he wrote. 
Yeah. And then Jackson Brown songs, too. Because he was part of the, the scene back then. Do you uh, remember when you first heard it? Uh, I heard it in the 80s. The first song we heard, I heard Chelsea Girls. Somebody brought in a mixtape. And I really enjoyed the song Chelsea Girls. And then I, I found, the, it's a CD. I got it in a, a record store and listened to it and loved all the other songs, too. I've always been a Lou Reed fan and a John Cale fan. And uh, I hear definitely them in it. John Cale had a lot to do with it. Yeah. From what I understand. One thing that I read about this record when I was doing my research is the fact that Nika herself seemed to be quite dissatisfied with it. I think a lot of the elements that she didn't ask to be there. Oh. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I think she mentioned that the first time she heard it, the flute made her cry because she couldn't stand the oh, sound of it. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know that part. The first thing I heard her do was that live record with Eno and John Cale, The End. She does The End on harmonium. Right. Uh, June, it's a date, June 16th, 1974 or something like that. Is that it? June 6th, something like that? It's uh, Kevin Ayer's record. Right. And were you immediately drawn into what she was doing at that point? Not at, for that one, no. Not really. I liked it when I started hearing her doing song songs, like My Funny Valentine was on that tape as well. I came to her pretty late in the game, I would say. Are there other albums as well that you connect with of hers? With hers? No, not really. This oh, is the one. This is my record. I know about Marble Index and whichever record she did Heroes. I like that. That was on that mixtape as well. And My Funny Valentine, that's one of my favorite versions of that song. Just her voice, the quality of her voice is so curious, I think. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that obviously this is the record that was prior to her writing any of her own material. And it's interesting that she essentially then, obviously the instrumentation is very consistent, but she is then forced to become the common thread with her voice and even though you can really hear I feel like you can hear Dylan coming through particularly in that Dylan one and you can hear these different Im forces impressing on the direction of it right. her voice is just so strong that it can't feel anything other than continuous and having like a seamlessness to it Was that her issue? Is she felt it wasn't enough her? that she wanted to write everything and be in control? I think her issue was actually... I, I, I believe her issue was the fact that she, the, the producers went and added those orchestral elements, so the strings and the flutes, without her permission or without consulting her. And I think she asked for drums on the record as well. Right. And they said no. Yeah, there's not um, much... There's no drums, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting that this uh, record that, I mean, so many people seem to connect with, but and, and yet it's not in her vision. It sounds like it would have been a completely different and much more minimal album had she had 
free reign over the material, you know. I wonder if there is a version of her idea of it. Carry them away in the earth. Let your memory reduce into dust. But don't forget the But that's one of the dangers of, you know, you, you, go, you hear it all the time, bands going, just kind of throwing something out there, and then that becomes the big song they're known for. And you maybe go out and buy a record on the basis of this one song that actually was just an aside for them. And the rest of the record is nothing like that whatsoever. Yes. It's kind of an ironic curse, I guess, because... It sounds like a lot of bands end up doing that because labels force them to. I'm thinking, for example, of Talk Talk, who I wrote about quite extensively a couple of years ago, but they had an album which completely... The label were like, it has no singles on it, so they were like, fine, we'll write a single, and then suddenly it completely skews the vision of the record because as an entry point it has very little to do with it's you know the one song people like and the rest of it is double the disappointment <laughs> which is what the band likes yeah exactly yeah, that's that's a, a weird thing i always get a little bit questionable i question when uh, i start liking something i do too much oh really it's like oh wow wait a minute I like this, that means what, all of five other people in the world are going to like this? Wow, that's an issue. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think you do, you do. You just do what you think is right. And if people like it, great. I don't know, I, I cannot, I'm not that kind of musician where I write for other people. Or I could say, oh, I'm going to write the hit. I hear that all the time watching all the 70s rock. Uh, like documentary stuff they seem to know like the 10cc documentary is really good what where they talk about writing like the big hit and they just know it and it's like oh really wow that's amazing to just <laughs> know it huh. i've um seen you talk about the fact you saw you two really early on and saying that you knew they were going to be huge on the basis of what they were playing just a feeling, yeah. They seemed right. Hmm. That's an, an odd thing. And then when they do, I mean, how many other times has it happened where no? Well, no, I, that doesn't happen very often. They were, there was something to them. Um, I'm intrigued you mentioned about obviously writing and making material that front and foremost pleases yourself and your own inclinations. I mean, obviously you've been involved in music which has i guess had a, the whole spectrum of reactions in terms of you know extremities of like and dislike has the matter of public reception ever been anything that you think about or consider i mean it never felt like it shaped anything that you've done but was it something that you thought about much not really I, well i wonder at it it's like wow why don't people like that that seems 
odd or bizarrely true. It's like, wow, people like that? That's amazing to me. <laughs> I mean, I like it, but wow, other people like it too. Um, no, I don't think about it that much. To a point, you know, everybody would love to be accepted and loved by millions, as they say, but... If I could have the name of your second record, Norman, that would be great. I think we'll uh, switch it up from New York and go to Black Box. All right. <laughs> I was not expecting that to be the second one you picked, but yeah, let's go for it. I know Thor Harris from We Have a Common Ground and our love for, uh, I call it, uh, roller skate disco. <laughs> um, and it's... Uh, Kind of, I think it's European kind of techno disco, isn't it? I don't even know if they call it disco, but I'm an old guy, so I call it disco. Is it? Oh, I'm rubbish with dance subgenres. I feel yes, like there's a big it, house element in there, right? They're Italian, I think. Yes, it's Italian. It's definitely um, dance, European dance, right? Yeah, I mean, roller skate <laughs> disco is a better description, I think, than anything i've heard there was a big club in new york that was a roller uh roller skating rink that had dance music a lot i went there once i think africa bombado was doing a gig there and i got pulled in there once a gig while everyone's on roller skates you could get roller skates yes you could rent roller skates and they had uh, this big thing in the middle of the floor and that's where the djs would be that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I didn't roller <laughs> skate that day, but that was a, quite a while ago. Wow. But in this record, I mean, I love how happy it is. Mm. And um, uh, the beautiful singing. Once again, it's something I, I can't do, sing, but I love singers. Do you remember where you first heard this one? Oh, that's a tough one. I guess... Um, I don't know where I heard it. I mean, I used to hear it coming out of stereo stores all the time in New York, you know, different songs. But, and why I bought it, I, I can't tell you either. <laughs> it's just a, a record I, I listen to. It's, I always think of when I listen, think of the blues, I always go back to the Robert Johnson record. Right. And whenever I hear dance music, I come back to this record and figure that guy got it right on this record. Oh, and even if you're not hearing this particular record, it draws you back to wanting to listening to the time that someone got it precisely right. Well, I come right. back to this one and go, okay, this is the one for me, like dance music. It's because there's other bands, Technotronic, I was, all of that, too unlimited. There's so many weird, you know, European dance bands. I wasn't a big CC Music Factory fan, but even though it's the same thing, really. And what was the other one? Snap uh, was another one that I used to listen to. I just went through a phase where I listened to this stuff a lot. Where did you listen to it? Uh, at home. In my headphones, you know, a cassette or uh, just around. And at work, we used to listen to music at work. And uh, I'd drive them crazy with my uh, Italian techno music. <laughs> and then, of course, we walked around with CD Walkmans, too. So what did you want to I'd listen on that.
you can really line up your footsteps to this one as well. Well, then you start, yes. <laughs> and I made a clock. I make clocks, and I gave that clock to Thor since he's such a big fan, and it's of the cover of the record. And uh, oh, if you, no way. you ever do one of these interviews with Thor, you can ask him about that clock. Because <laughs> we do share that love of this type of music. I really, I, and I know that I should probably be more broad-minded in anticipating what my guests are going to put forward, but this is absolutely not something that I thought was going to be on your list at all. I have my own little section on my CD rack of this music. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not very many. I mean, I, I, it wore out kind of fast, but it looms large. This record is huge for me. In a way, I guess if it would be in my, I guess if I had to do, well, that's weird. I guess I would need a top 20, but it would be there. <laughs> because it's interesting that you say about listening to it at home or at work. I mean, one thing I always find really interesting, and my stepdad is really into trance music, but we'll just listen to it on the sofa reading a newspaper. And oh, really? <laughs> obviously it's at such direct odds with the ultimate intention of all that kind of music which is the most ecstatic form of music possible and i've always i mean i do it as well you know i listen to quite intense techno music but just sat stationary and there's something that always strikes me as quite funny about that but a lot of it is really well crafted and i guess yes. I, I guess the only way you can appreciate that is actually listening you know Right. Do you have a favorite track on this one? I was looking at I think I don't know anybody else. It's the second track. And uh, that's pretty much my favorite track. But other tracks on this will pop into my head. And I'll go, oh, I, I have to go listen to that. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, I, I looked at the, I think it was on the Wikipedia page, they talked about the chart performance of the various tracks on here and it sounds like there were several tracks that pretty much dominated the radio over in the states at a certain time which i guess is how you came to know about it right yeah i did but i've never been that big of a radio listener since uh you know as a kid i guess i listened to radio but not as uh, an adult so no i i well maybe that's what was booming out of some of the stereo stores was the radio and certainly the radio station that would play this would not be one i'd be listening to i don't think <laughs> this is it i mean it there's a the track on here ride on time is i don't know whether it was featured in the charts in the states it doesn't look like it really got that high in the charts but over in the uk it was absolutely huge and huge uh, yes yeah yeah I, I mean i don't listen to the radio really at all and yet i can't go by you know a period of three months without hearing it leaking out of something uh, i mean <laughs> yeah that's yeah it's a huge song and mm. it sounds like to me that he recorded like the singers singing lines and he sampled them and he played them on a keyboard because I think it's just one it's one guy in a studio who put it all together yeah I don't think the vocalists are part of the band are they no and the the girl that they had in the videos was not a very Milli Vanilli type of thing I believe too apparently she just was the 
quote unquote image of the the band, which is such an interesting idea that you would have someone lip syncing your songs even though they hadn't ever sung them in the first place. Well, that's a, the same with is it the black metal band Bathory? Um, yeah, he had the songs. He's a one man band. But they told him, oh, uh, you need to have a band. So he got his friends and dressed them up and said, yeah, come on, we're doing a shoot. <laughs> Quarthon was his name, I think. But also, as far as your, your records go, uh, it's the entire record I, I'll sit and listen to. That was one of the things I thought about when you asked me about the three records. I don't just listen to a couple songs and turn it off. It's the whole record, I find. Mm. A fun journey. I was surprised at how consistent this record is all the way through, because as we were talking about where you've got that one song that turns out the hit, you know, I'd heard Ride on Time and was like, I bet that this is a record where you know, that's leading the charge, and then the rest were basically bulking out running time for a right. full-length disc, but absolutely but it's not. it's not that way, is it? No, no, the first three songs are powerhouses, and then I think there's a little bit of a, a lull, an instrumental kind of weirdness, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's a great record. <laughs> no guitars. Once again, I, I'm not being this... It's not very rock guitar-heavy stuff. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Which I guess you would expect, even though... Um, yeah, it's just what I listen to. It's not necessarily what I play. have the name of your final record, Norman? I chose Lou Reed's Berlin, which does have some Detroit rock guitar going on in it. And why is this one important to you? Um, I got it for Christmas when it came out, and I think I was looking on here, it was, what year did this come out, 72? 73, I think. 73. Well, I got it for Christmas that year, along with Alice Cooper's Muscle of Love and Zappa's Overnight Sensation. Um, and this is the one that has really stuck with me. Uh, I constantly go back and listen to it, even though the CD copy I have does not sound good. Oh, really? Uh, there's something wrong. I think the early CD pressings were pretty rough. And this one's an early one. It's very quiet, and it just doesn't sound good. I'm sure they fix that in later pressings. They even call CDs pressings. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds as though this album was hated by a lot of critics and sold pretty badly, so I can't imagine it helped as well if the actual execution of the CD was off as well. And you got it as a Christmas present. I mean, how do you know how old you were at this time? Well, let's see. What did you say? 1973? Mm-hmm. So I would have been um, 
15, 15 or 14 or 15. They, they were my choices. I already knew who Lou Reed was. I think I already had Transformer, of course. And I had looked at, I had a Velvet Underground record, uh, the live one, live in Texas, whatever that one's called, the double record. Um, yes, and I was a huge Alice Cooper fan. And I, reading Cree magazine, I knew that Bob Ezrin was involved with this record too, and I had read articles about it, so I was very excited to hear it. I was a little disappointed when I first put it on, but the more I listened to it, the more I loved it. Even as a kid, I liked it. My friends didn't like it much when I played it. It strikes me as a record that people have needed a time to really soak up. I mean, was it a case that coming off the back of Transformer, it jarred in terms of the direction that he went with this? Well, I think with this record, you have to kind of listen to the whole thing. It's definitely an ongoing story, unlike Transformer, which is what, a group of songs. Hmm. And in general, aren't his records are just groups of songs. They're not necessarily a whole long story about two people. Do you recall what you thought of the lyrical content at the time? I mean, that's quite a lot to uh, be hit with, I guess, at the age of 14, 15. Well, I was excited. It was like a, a little soap opera going mm. on. And just, uh, I, I like story songs. Something in me, I like hearing a, a, a story in a song and somebody just telling a story a la Alice's Restaurant. Kind of, you can just get immersed in that story. And as far as the content goes, I was already, not that it really applied to me or my life. I, uh, from hearing the other Velvet Underground and Lou Reed songs, I had a, an idea there was something else going on in the world. There were other <laughs> lives beside, you know, my playing baseball and practicing guitar. And this one sounded like one I didn't necessarily hope, I did not want to be involved in, but to hear him <laughs> sing about it was fine. And yeah. I was going to say, there's later in How Do You Think It Feels, I love the swagger. There's definitely a swagger in there. The yeah. lyrical, you know, the vocal delivery and the guitars and everything about it is, you know, it rocks right there. This was one apparently they were going to try and turn into like a stage production as well, which I think definitely matches up. I wonder if uh, that ever would have happened. You mean like, oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I would have seen it. I'm not a big fan of the, uh, you know, when he restaged it. I, I didn't quite make it through that. You know, he, he did it note for note, except, uh, well... Everybody else did it note for note, but Lou didn't do it note for note. <laughs> and then he threw it, he just played guitar over all the good parts. I mean, he had the original guitar player, Steve Hunter, was there playing note for note, and everybody was doing a great job, uh, but I guess the boss can do what he wants to do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, it, I, I didn't need it. I saw Lou Reed once in Detroit, and uh, it was a good show. I think it might have been Street Hassle. I wasn't that involved with him at that point, but 
It was a good show. The best being Ian Dury and the Blockheads opened, and they were really, uh, that was a, a great show. Ian Dury got booed. Wow. Just booed. Just booed. Unbelievably booed. And it must have been Lou Reed's idea. You know, when the lights go down and everybody starts freaking out and then, you know, the Lou Reed band comes out. Well, instead of the Lou Reed band, the Blockheads came out. <laughs> so it went from cheers to booing. Oh Just unbelievable God. booing. Detroit was a rough crowd for openers. How, how long did um, the Blockheads last? I mean, did they stay for the entire set? Oh, they did their whole set, yeah. Wow. And they were booed throughout their set. Um, it didn't bother them. I think they were used to that kind of thing, and they welcomed it. And then when they walked out, they did a last stage call. Just <laughs> instead of Lou Reed, it was them. And uh, it was a, a bit of a joke that I enjoyed. But they were great. I mean, they. I remember Ian Dury's show much more than I remember that Lou Reed show. But Lou Reed was good at the time as well? I, you know, that's it. Uh, um, I'm drawing a, a blank about that show. I think it was Street Hassle, and it was good. Mm. I don't even, it wasn't Quine. You know, I don't know who was playing guitar in that band. Mm. It was a big band, from what I remember, and Lou played all the time. Um, it just, I, I, he played some of the hits and a lot of new songs. As you know about Lou Reed, there's quite a few records that maybe aren't, uh, you don't really, I don't like them. There every few records I liked. It wasn't, uh, oh, great, a new Lou Reed record. Then you listen to it and go, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Which, no, no, I, I you tend to, I say this about, um, I love uh, Stereo Lab. But my theory is everybody has the Stereo Lab record that they like. There might be 20 records, but you only like one, and mine is Emperor Tomato Ketchup. That's the only one I like. I listen to some of the other ones and go, eh, I'm going to go listen to the uh, Emperor Tomato Ketchup now. <laughs> so I own the other I own Coney Island Baby every so often I put it on but I take it off and same with uh, Sally Can't Dance I put it on and then I take it off and I listen to Berlin so for me Berlin is is hype really what about any of the later stuff I mean in fact I had uh, Aaron Turner from Isis and Sumac on here and he picked Metallica for his and I think was expressing his bewilderment about Lulu from the Metallica side of things. I don't know whether that was a record that you ever looked into. You mean it was a Lou Reed record with Metallica? Yeah, I remember something about that. No, I, that wouldn't interest me much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what was the one with Pavarotti? Was that Lou Reed? Yes, he was singing a Lou Reed song. Remember that? That was, wow. <laughs> you know, but I like the bell. Like, uh, we used to listen to the bells, but I like the Blue Mask, and that's great guitar playing. Robert Quine is fantastic on that record. Hmm. And I like, once again, he's singing songs. The songs are stories within themselves, even though some of them are kind of goofy. 
but um, I really enjoyed that record. It seems like he almost had a habit of every few records pushing people away. I mean, he did that commercially by the looks of it, by following up some of his most successful records with some of his most hated. I mean, I think... I can't remember what metal machine know, music. Do you think somebody could actually do that on? Do you think somebody could do that on purpose? Metal machine music, right, was to get out of a contract. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember when that came out, and I looked at it, and I guess if I was really a forward-thinking kid, I would have bought it. And uh, but I didn't. I loved rock and roll animal. You know, that's got. It's just a guitar record, and I understand that he didn't like it. And a friend of mine in Detroit saw one of those shows with those guys, and that would, I was like, oh, that would have been a dream come true to see that band. Do you uh, recall what you thought of Metal Machine Music at the time? Um, I just heard about it. Uh, I didn't think much of it. I, I didn't understand art, really. I just thought it was insanity, really. Well, it's still strike. It's still just strikes me as an incredible statement to make. I mean, I realised that there was music occurring at that time which was equally as bewildering within certain annals of the underground, but to present that to... Yes, as a double record release, yeah. Yeah, without any warning (laughs) as well. Just maybe skip this one if you're not... Up for but I would say listen to Metal Machine music and skip Coney Island Baby or something like that. <laughs> I mean, there's more of that kind of record than there is something like Metal Machine music, that's for sure. One other question I had for you, Norman, was, I mean, you mentioned that Black Box is something you listen to at home. I'm wondering whether there's like a an environment where you listen to records to really appreciate them. I think I remember in our interview that you have, like, quote-unquote, the big stereo that you often listen to music well, out of. Well, we do. It's it's not a good stereo. Right. Um, it's just it's an oddity in New York City to, to actually have room for big speakers, and I inherited some big speakers from a co-worker. So, yes, if we want it. But then the good equipment isn't hooked up to it. There's no turntable hooked up to that. I don't listen to music as seriously as I used to when I had the record player set up and I'd listen. And you'd hold the record in front of you and read along or look at who did what. But um, no, I don't crank up Black Box and disco around the house <laughs> if that's really what you were getting to. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm intrigued. I mean, you mentioned there that you don't listen to records as intensely. I think the main reason for asking the question, although you know the thought of discoing up your household is is amusing, is the is the um, trying to find ways to maintain a intimate relationship with listening at a time where such activity is kind of discouraged by the current way that people often listen to music so i wonder whether there was a a way that you i don't know properly listen to something whether there's a a means by which you're like okay i'm going to really listen to this record is there somewhere that you go 
Yeah, it would have to be headphones. I put on the headphones and I listen. Or we have the better, the turntables in the bedroom. I could lay on the bed and listen. You mentioned somebody reading a newspaper. I can't, like if I played any of the three records I mentioned, um, I wouldn't be able to read anything and retain it. It just wouldn't work for me. Because it's so, in, like, so you're so caught up in the experience? Yeah, it's like having a like having the tv on and trying to listen to music i mean it doesn't it, too many things are vying for your attention for me at least i just i've never been able to i read a lot and i can't read while i listen to this type of music some classical music until i get to know it too well then it draws my attention away from what i'm reading but then once again, when I was a kid, I'd sit there and listen to these records. Well, not necessarily Black Box or Nico, but really just lay there and listen and kind of envision the band on stage playing them or whatever. If only, if only, only How do you think it feels? And when do you think well norman this has been great thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about these records. It's been, like I say, a real education for me. And, you know, I appreciate being brought into, you know, Nico, but also as well, the Italian roller skate disco. It's fun to talk about them. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about anything like this. Why do you like this? Why do you even listen to it? Interesting to try to put into words why they matter. Especially as it's not always something that lends itself to being rationalized, right? Right. Yeah. It's like, why? Well, I can't say it because it's good, because that's just my opinion, which would be... Well, that was the argument with the Raw Power, the Stooges record, uh, when he remastered it. Somebody told me it was better and I went no it's not better everybody knows it's not better how could you even say that but um, I guess for some people you know everybody's got their own for sure and it's difficult with words like better isn't it because I guess they get conflated with quality rather than intensity of sensation or you know quantity of endorphins released or whatever but um and one other thing about Berlin, it, a lot of music, I'm sure it happens to you, it brings you back to a time and a place. Mm. Um, since Berlin's been with me through everything, really, in a way, since I was a kid, it doesn't immediately bring me back to that place. It's not really a nostalgia trip when I listen to it. It's kind of fresh every time. That's really interesting because i thought you were going to say because you found it as a kid that it had a very particular tie to a particular location which happens for so many albums that i discovered then 
I can envision, you know, myself sitting on the bed in my room listening to it, but that's not where it takes me when I listen to it now. If I think about it, it's there, but that's not a reason for listening to it either. Yeah, I guess it, though it still holds a part of the reason why this record is considered important if it's been with you through everything. Yes, and I still go back to it. There's lots of records I listened to back then that when I put them on now, I go, ugh, wow. <laughs> what did I... Okay, I can see what I saw in this, but that's enough. Now I know I take it off. Whereas Berlin, I'll listen to the whole thing and enjoy the whole thing. Once I put it on, I don't take it off. Same with the other two. Yeah, do you think there's... Is there any tracks on Berlin at all that you're not keen on? On which one? Is, is there any of them that... that you're not keen on, or is the whole thing very consistent for you? For any of the three records? Um, I mean, I was asking about Berlin, but yeah, I guess for, for any of those records. For some reason on Berlin, um, no, there's nothing. Man of, good, Man of Good Fortune used to not be my favorite song, but it sets up the more rocking songs that are coming up. So it's really, a, it's a perfect song to have there. And the other songs, the Nico record, I, the, the weirder songs are the ones I'm least, I like the songy songs. There's that one in the middle that's, what, like eight minutes long? Is it called It Was a Pleasure Then, I think? Yes, yeah, yes, that's, you're right. Hmm, that one uh, kind of almost risks coming on the, off the rails a bit, but... Uh... <laughs> but still it's it's a good thing to have there because then you kind of get a little breather or makes you wonder and black box there's nothing wrong with that except you have to go and start it over after you're done listening to it actually one other question i did have and it's just popped back into my head is when you mentioned that uh, ian drury getting booed uh, is yeah. booing ever something that you've been on the end of? I'm um, getting booed. Hmm. In Swans, people just walked away. So no booing, just. I mean, that was it. Sw well, no, we got booed heavily. One of the, the first English date was in London, opening for the fall at Heaven, and oh, did they hate us. <laughs> We had a half an hour, and it was a battle, and it was one of my favorite shows of all any Swan show, really. They couldn't leave. See, that's why Ian Dury was booed, because people were there for the read, and uh, they were the opening band. So, of course, either you don't pay attention to them, or in Ian Dury's case, it's a fight. But no, only that show in London were Swans, really, because we, we really didn't open for bands. So if you're a headliner band and they don't like you, they just walk away. And you mentioned that was one of your favorites. Is there a, a tension that's born out in that scenario? It was just fantastic. I think we played a half an hour and we walked out and complete silence and just crashed right into it. And the whole audience kind of reared back and then went, <laughs> they hated us so much. Oh, did they hate us. It was great. It felt really good. It was really a, a fun thing, which is what kind of, it wasn't a bad thing at that point in our lives. I suppose when you're playing with 
extremities like that then to elicit such an intense reaction regardless where it falls on the spectrum is is all is is entirely yes. the, the the point right um, yes, I, yeah. I mean i think actually a band that i i was in decided that if half the audience walk out then it's perfect and the other half really oh. like you <laughs> right well i wonder about some band was that true didn't the kinks used to uh they play really badly for whatever an hour and they figure people who didn't like them would leave and then once everybody who didn't like them left they play the then they would start playing <laughs> is that true or is that just some fantastical thing i heard or made up well i feel like for example radiohead who i like a lot tend to do that in the they won't play the songs that people come to hear until about two hours into the set, which, Ooh, if you're only there yeah. for those, it's a slog. <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be. Well, Norman, thank you so much for, uh, like I say, taking the time to, to speak with me. Um, if people want to find out what you're up to musically, is there a best place for them to head online to see what you're doing. Uh, I wish there was my website I have to work on um, <laughs> and I promise I will um, <laughs> and that's just normanwestberg.com uh, maybe that'll get me going on that yeah they can find me online I'm around I mean I, I'm, I'll have more stuff in the Etsy store and uh, try to get more productive again I'm not a blogger, so... Right. So. <laughs> um, although, I see that you've, you're on Facebook, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, they can see what I look at there. Cool. Well, thanks once again, and to everyone listening, I will see you next time. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> <laughs>